Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Pitchmasters with me, your host, Danny Fontaine. This week I speak to yet another one of my all-time pitching heroes, the legendary Peter Cowter. Founder and CEO of Cowter & Company, professor at VCU Brand Center, and author of one of my favorite books, The Art of the Pitch. In this episode, we discuss a lot of pitch material, the fear that we all have, whether we need a deck, bringing the right people and breaking the rules. But best of all, Peter is a natural born storyteller and this episode is full to the brim of pitch anecdotes that will make you laugh and make you cry. So sit back, grab a drink and get ready to take some notes. Peter Cowter, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I'm a big fan of yours, but before I steal your thunder, I would love you to to introduce yourself, to pitch yourself to anyone who may not have heard about you and your fantastic work. Well, well, hello, Danny, and it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for thinking of me. Uh, I don't want to do my entire bio. I will will just say (laughs) that uh, my involvement with pitching Mm. It's a good place to start is that I, with two other fellows, we started an advertising agency in Richmond, Virginia, where I live. And we had no accounts, no business, no revenue, no, we had no furniture. We had nothing. And what we had to do, we quickly realized is to go into rooms and convince people who did not know us, who'd never heard of us up against much better, tougher, well-known, better-funded competition to give us their money. (laughs) It's a big ask, as people say. And the only way that one can do that is to be so compelling and so powerful in that room that they are willing to take what is quite literally a chance on the, the idea that maybe something extraordinary can happen if we go with these new guys. And so that's how I got involved in it. We got very good at it. Uh, we were able to grow the company quite successfully. I left after 20 years, and because I had developed a bit of a reputation at being good at this sort of thing, started doing my one-man consultancy. Uh, some of the stories from the book, uh, come directly from that consultancy work. And about the same time, I began to teach at what was then known as the VCU Ad Center, Virginia Commonwealth University, which is here in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, we started it and uh, from scratch with a, a wonderful, wonderful woman who was actually a former employee of mine named Diane Cook Tench. And uh, she led the school and she asked me to come aboard as an adjunct to see if I enjoyed doing it. Mm. So I did. And I asked her, what, what do you want me to teach? (laughs) It was pretty much a pirate ship. And, uh, she said, I don't know, whatever you feel like. Right. So I grab, I gravitated towards trying to help students sell their work and learn more about presenting and ultimately learn more about themselves. So that's, that's too long. I know, but I, I tried to, I tried to compress it. No, that's perfect. Because that, that's a game of two halves. Um, we're going to talk mainly, I think, about the first half, the pitching stuff. But I'm interested to know, what was it like moving from the 
fast-paced, cutthroat, thrill-ride, depressing hellhole of pitching into kind of <laughs> education and that kind of regular life? Well, I'd never really moved so much. I did these things simultaneously. In fact, when I started the company, uh, I would travel. Mm. You travel all around the world. Right. I, I've been fortunate enough to do so as well. But I would travel leaving Richmond on Sunday, uh, returning on Wednesday, teach school on Thursday and Friday, relax on Saturday, and travel again on Sunday. Right. And that was week after week after week. And that got a little tiresome, by the way. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, not doing that anymore. Good. <laughs> but, and, and another thing I think at the heart of your question is that, yes, advertising is a, a soul-sucking mm -hmm. business. <laughs> and yes, it, it's a wonderful thing if you can work for yourself. You know, it was a big difference to have our name on the door right. of, the, of the agency. But in the consultancy, I don't have to be in advertising. I just talk about advertising with the people who have to live it day to day. So I rather like that. Right. And so does that make sense? It makes total sense. Yeah. I actually, before I got, I did it the other way around. Before I got into all of this, I used to be a lecturer at university. So for me, it's been a complete ah. kind of opposite, actually, with a bit of a crossover as well. But there you go. So pitching, I'm, what I'm interested in, first of all, so your book, you've mentioned it already. It's called The Art of the Pitch. And I want to just say it out loud, because if you haven't read it, you've got to go and read it. I've read it multiple times. It's full of anecdotes and real tangible advice. And you've just mentioned starting up the agency. Did it go well in the first part? How did you how did your first pitch go when you had no clients? Did you figure it out straight away? No. No, 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 no. Uh, and that's something I yes, you're, you're chuckling because you know what that means. Like. <laughs> I do. Uh, we we made every mistake known to man. Right. Every possible mistake, and we tried like hell not to make them twice. Yeah. You know? uh, we learned tremendously from that, and uh, those became a, a cornerstone of my teaching mm. and my philosophy of, about presenting, you know, don't do this, whatever right. you do, don't do that. So that's, yeah, we made mistakes. And, and the, the first major win that we had, we had a, just a remarkable, wonderful prospective client who put us into the pitch, as I said before, against, we were in against J. Walter Thompson, right. which at the time was the brand name in advertising, you know, in Madison Avenue. And we're here in Richmond, Virginia, three guys nobody ever heard of. Yeah. But they put us in there and they believed that we might just have something. And so we went through multiple, multiple, multiple pitches just when we think, oh, that went well, we've won. No, all we had won is the opportunity to come back another time. Mm, been there. Yeah, and that was very helpful to our cause, actually, because we got better. Right. We learned more about them as people, which is tremendously important. I mean, that's something we can talk about for some time. We learned about them as people, and they learned about us. And lo and behold, they began to like us. You know, I have people say, 
Well, the reason that we're here today is uh, you know, not 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 to the client, but in, in meetings they'll be going, okay, here's what we're gonna we got to sell this work. Mm-hmm. We need to sell this work. Well, that may be the result of a successful presentation, but it's not how you win the presentation. The, the number one goal that I have for any presentation is to connect, mm-hmm. and the way we connect is emotionally, not objectively. A lot of people don't want to hear that because it's uh, it flies in the face of uh, big data, if you will, right. all, all that sort of that sort of left brain thinking that, that that predominates in the business world. But it is creativity and connection that carries the day. It just is. And so, how do we begin to build an emotional connection? with a client whom, at least at the beginning, are strangers to us? Uh, one of the most extraordinary uh, opportunities I ever had in, in my business career was that I was asked by the city of Boston, Massachusetts, about 10 or 12 years ago now, to help them pitch the International Olympic Committee on choosing them as the host city for the 2024 Summer Olympic Games. Wow. People say, what's the biggest pitch you've ever been involved in? Well, that's it by a mile. (laughs) Because it's not millions of dollars, it's billions of dollars that are at stake. So I will try to boil this down a bit. Um, The first step was to win over the... uh, uh, the USOC, United States Olympic Committee, because their job is to then is to choose one American city to go to Europe and to pitch against the European capitals. Mm-hmm. We were in it. I didn't get involved in the very beginning. I got involved. I was brought in when they were in the final four. They went from 36, one of 36 cities down to four. The other three competitors were Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and San Francisco three world-class cities and boston was feeling a little bit of a you know a bit of an underdog right certainly we were the underdog but the only way i I thought that we could i I, you know i the things that i preached have worked Mm. but more often than not and so one has to trust oneself you know and i i couldn't be afraid of the moment you know, which isn't the praise of myself. I just mean that I find myself in a room in Boston with um, Paul Simon has a line about a, a loose connection of a, a, right. a loose confederation of millionaires and billionaires. Well, that's what this was. I mean, the the entry, but the, the cost of entry was being a billionaire. Right. There were several billionaires on this committee. And of course, you've worked with people like that. They are all the smartest person in the world. <laughs> yeah. And they all know everything about everything, yeah, including advertising, including you know everything. So I couldn't be, I, I couldn't be intimidated by that. So I had to stand up for what I believed in, and I was able to win over the head of the whole committee simply by saying that, you know, by telling the truth, mm. and just by telling the truth in the meeting, he could see all right, well, this guy actually does have some idea about what the fuck he's talking about, Mm. you know? 
So flash forward. We're in the final four. Uh, we're in uh, a meeting about a month before that meeting is to take place. Again, we're in Boston. And I turn to the 20 or so other people that are in the room and I say, what is the significance of the date that these people are coming to see us? Hmm. And they said, hmm, hmm, let me say, what do you mean? Well, it's going to be, I don't remember the exact date, but so let's just say it was April 12th. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, okay, and what, what? What about April 12th? They said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> and I said, well, April 12th is one year and three days removed from the bombing at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Yeah. And the room gets, of course, deathly quiet. And somebody says, well, that's one reason we can't talk about that. We cannot discuss that. And I said, no, we have to discuss that. And they said, why? And I said, because they are going to know about it. It's going to be on the front page of the Boston Globe every day. It's going to lead the six o'clock news every single day. These folks are going to be in town for a while. Plus, they're the U.S. Olympic Committee, the centerpiece of which is a marathon. Right. They know about the marathon. We got to find a way to deal with it because I'm thinking this could be to answer your question. Finally, this could be the way to begin to make an emotional connection to tell a story that makes sense for where we're going. Mm. So then I did something that I, that I urged everyone to do. I, it's, it's a part of doing due diligence. I look for stories that individuals on our team may have. So I just asked the group, does anybody have a specific memory of, a, of an experience that day with regard to the, to the marathon? And the chairman of the committee said, yes, I do. I was there. I said, whoa, okay. You and I are going down the hall to your office. We're going to talk about that. And you other guys just, you know, talk amongst yourselves, right? And I get in there to his office, and we start going back and forth, back and forth. It turns out that he uh, hosts a party every year at his house, which is in the building that overlooks the finish line. Wow. On Boylston Street. Wow. So, so we got together. We talked. A uh, month goes by, and the five people from the USOC show up now they had had conversations obviously before but this is the first real you know most of that the, the cut from this from the long list to the final four was done pretty much based on the documentation the written paperwork etc cetera, etc cetera, for the most part mm. they didn't really have any kind of emotional connection with our folks so they walk in they sit down We've already done the good mornings, you know, and the nervous standing around with the coffee cup shaking. You've been in that one too, I'm sure. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> right. I've spilled coffee so, all over the place before. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So they sit down and they start their clock. Mind you, they have a clock. Right. Because they can't allow anyone to have more time than mm -hmm. anyone else. So we have two hours. John, the chairman, stands up and he doesn't say 
Good morning. We're so happy you're here. He does it. I love this one in advertising. Good morning. We've got a lot of great work to show you. <laughs> and, and, right. And we can't wait. Right. But first, let's meet the team. Yeah. Oh, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> we'll come back to introductions. Out, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just out. Yeah. Next, you're going to show me a fucking agenda. Right. You know? No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. John stands up instead and he says, Today is one year and three days removed from one of the worst events in the history of the Commonwealth, a dark day in Boston, indeed in the United States. You all know what it was, the bombing at the finish line of the marathon. I was there that day. My house overlooks the finish line. Every year, my wife and I host a brunch on the patio overlooking the finish line with family and friends. And last year was no exception. We were there. Friends were there. We were having a lovely time. It was a beautiful early spring day, crisp air, beautiful blue sky, everyone in a very good mood, watching thousands of competitors run up the street, some jogging, some walking, some racing, but all of them trying to get to the finish line. And it's just a really exciting, invigorating day. When suddenly we hear a loud noise. And we can't quite process what it is. The idea of an explosion didn't occur to us. But we saw smoke down below us, right below us. We saw smoke and some fire. And just when we started to get the idea that, yes, this is an explosion, boom, there's another sound, another explosion, just to the left of the first one. More smoke, more fire, people screaming, and people running, people running everywhere. But the people weren't running away. They were running into the smoke and into the fire to see if they could help because that's Boston and that's who we are. Later that afternoon, I called my friend Mike Sheehan over at the Boston Globe and I said, Mike, we've got to do something. We've got to do something to help the families that were affected by this, something to build up the, the spirits of the people in Boston, the people in the city, the whole region. And that was the day that the One Fund was born, known as Boston Strong. And last year, we raised $87 million without ever asking for a penny. Wow. Because that's Boston, and that's who we are. And he sat down. <laughs> did he drop the mic, or did, it, did he just put it down? <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah. I, I had shivers up my spine for, for, for all of that, basically. So. Yeah, now, now I, 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 I hasten to say... That may be a bit heavy. That may be a bit over the top. I don't, we were, because another thing, see, is that I, that I really believe is if you are a, a considerable underdog, you've got to do something different. You've got to shake it up. Mm. So that's really a secondary point to the one that I want to make, which is to answer your question. That's how we forged an emotional connection. Because just as you felt what, what you were just feeling, those five judges did too. Yeah. 
And what one can do when you when one does that is change the emotional temperature, if you will, in the room. You've changed their their expectations. Yeah. You're talking about something that they had no no idea would come up. So their minds change. They begin to think on that emotional wavelength. I later found out, I mean, I've always known that making that, that idea of uh, we just sit down and we click, you know, we've had a great connection, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's actually a scientific, you know, explanation for that. Hmm. And it's called it's called neural coupling. And the data show that when a speaker tells a particularly emotional tale like that one, her brain waves change from the normal. And so do the brainwaves of the audience to match the speaker's brainwaves. Right. So that's when you really begin to make that connection. And then if you can carry that through as far as you can go, you know, if you can make that thread live in your story, you can carry the day. So let's hypothetically picture a listener listening to you now let's call her jane okay jane's saying well that's great peter but i live in the uk and nothing like that has ever happened to me in my life i don't have a boston marathon story i can't make that emotional connect what do you say to her i say you have a story you just don't think you do right uh one of the things that um that I've enjoyed doing. Uh, this may sound like a digre- digression, but it'll it will eventually make the point. Uh, I've enjoyed really working with students on the uh, the art of interviewing, if you will. Right. And most every and that's as you know, that's just a presentation for yourself. Uh, and they, you know, they all want to sit down and go. Well, I was born in so and so. Yeah. And I like, you know, I love walks on the beach and cooking and traveling, you know. No, 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 no. You got to tell them something that they will remember, something that will differentiate you from everybody else. And inevitably, I get the people like Jane who go, well, yeah, well, well, Danny has a great story. Peter has a great story, but I don't have a story. And then I will inevitably find out that she was born in Lithuania and raised by wolves. Exactly. You know? she, she just, <laughs> right? She just doesn't think she about that at all. Yeah. So what you have to do is find that for you personally. Right. But in terms of, of, of a story for your presentation, find something that is unexpected, something that connects with the audience. Do your, again, another part of due diligence. Learn as much as you possibly can about these people. I said that earlier. Know them as people. When I work with with one of my teams, again, on the due diligence idea, I want to know where they went to college. I want to know what their hobbies are. I want to know if they have children. You know, I want to know anything I possibly can because, like that gentleman, John, I might find out something that's really, really powerful. Right. If, if I hadn't asked, if anybody didn't have an, you know, a story, they never would have come, would never would have come up. Yeah, and there would have been no reason to talk about the marathon. 
Yeah. And we wouldn't have had that that opportunity that we did. And actually, that's reminded me. There's another story in your book, actually, about the uh, the military guys and the research that you oh, did. Yeah. That, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> tell me about that. I love I love hearing you tell stories. <laughs> yeah, that's an oldie, but yeah. goodie, you know. Uh, that <laughs> that's play that's play the hits. You know? <laughs> we didn't come here to hear that. We came here to hear this. All right. Uh, uh, we had an opportunity. Well, I'll back up. We, meaning me, learned about uh, a presentation that was going to be hap- happening in Washington D.C. Uh, with one of the biggest advertisers in the city at the time. And um, I was very keen to uh, try to get my agency into it. So I contacted the person in charge. And he was a wonderful man, a really nice fella. And he just said, look, we don't know. We're not going to talk to anybody from outside Washington. And we're certainly not going to talk to someone from Richmond, Virginia. We just got burned. We had the aforementioned J. Walter Thompson as our agency for several years, and they wouldn't even leave Manhattan and come see us. We don't want to continue with someone who's a hundred miles away. And that's all it is, is a hundred miles to Washington. But I said, well, look, you know, most of the work that we, that you know about from us runs in Washington. We're, we're more of a Washington agency than the rest of them are already. And between us girls, there was no agencies worth a damn in Washington anyway. But they didn't know that. They didn't know anything about advertising. And one finds that a lot, right. don't we? You know. Um, well, I just kept badgering this guy. And he said, okay, all right, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a shot. I'll give you a shot. Uh, we'll come see you. That'll be the first step. He said, I'll come to you. I'll come to you every single week if you need it. No, 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 we're going to come see you. You know, and I guess they wanted to do the all-important furniture check. Right, you know, that, right. That, that, yeah. that one is so ridiculous. But <laughs> that's convention, and they like to follow convention. And um, prior to that visit, I asked our head of research to find out about these. Uh, it was four men, no ladies, just four men. And uh, he called up the client, and the client actually sent nothing less than a dossier on each of these individuals with photographs and right. complete bios, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I mentioned the college di- deal before. Uh, my research guy comes to me and goes, Peter, look at this. This is what I found. This fellow went to West Point and served in Vietnam. This guy went to the U.S. Naval Academy and served in the Navy, not in Vietnam, but in the Navy in the Middle East. This guy was in the Marine Corps. This guy lists military history as his famous, as his favorite, favorite thing to be involved in, his favorite hobby, military history and theater. He said, what do you think here? (laughs) I said, well, I think I I see a thread. And as luck would have it at the time, uh, and this is a long time ago, boys and girls, as luck would have it, the book, The Art of War, by Sun Tzu, was enjoying one of its regular right. rebirths as a business book. And we had read it. And uh, 
we used some of the teachings of, of the general to uh, showcase case histories. You know, rather than saying we did this, we would couch it in terms mm, of war. Mm. Well, that's why uh, the day, <laughs> again, it's always the day dawns. Yeah. They came, uh, they sat down, clearly disgruntled, didn't like to be in the room. It was long enough ago that you could smoke in offices. Right, okay. And they, they and three of them were smoking cigars. <laughs> you know, in, in blue surge well, suits. Imagine. You know, so yeah, you get the image. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, this the silly long haired hippie, uh, <laughs> gets up in front of the room and I don't even talk about advertising. I just say I want to talk today about my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, oh, my God. And <laughs> we drove what? two hours. <laughs> we drove two hours for this? <laughs> what? A movie? Holy shit. You know? And um, I said, and uh, that movie is Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> and that that gives them pause as we say yeah and they looked at me with well, okay maybe this won't be so terrible <laughs> might not be maybe boring at be, least right <laughs> it might not be boring you know and um and my favorite scene in that movie uh takes place around uh a huge campfire at the, the camp of a of a general like a kublai khan a genghis khan type general and uh, it's a big festival, a big celebration. People eating, drinking, dancing. And Conan is invited to join the party. And he's sitting on the hand, left hand of the general. And the general at one point turns to his son, who's on his right hand, and says, tell me, my son, what is the greatest feeling in the world? And his son says, that's easy, father. The greatest feeling in the world is to ride bareback on my steed across the steps and feel the wind blow in my hair. Okay, poetic, and the general literally doesn't care for that one too much. And he turns to Conan and asks him, tell me, Conan, what is the greatest feeling in life? He says, the greatest feeling in life is to crush your enemy, to see him flee before you, and to hear the lamentations of his women. And that's how we feel about advertising. <laughs> and that's why today's presentation is, boom, at that point, rear projected right. big screen behind me comes up and says, the art of war. They lean in. Right. They're all going, all right, yeah. all right, maybe this is going to okay. <laughs> I get this. I like this. I like this. At one point in, the fellow who listed military history and theater as his hobby stands up and delivers the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. It was just unfucking amazing. It was wow. just unbelievable. And it was over. We knew we had won. Why? Would you tell them anything about their business or that made it? No, nothing. Right. We just connected with them emotionally 
showed them some stuff. Yeah, they don't know. Look, the clients don't know. No. Nobody knows. It's entirely subjective. Right. You can't just walk in and say great work speaks for itself. It doesn't. You know, one percent of the time, maybe you just you look and go, "Wow, that's it." Yeah, maybe one percent, if that. The rest of the time, you have to sell it. You have to, and you know, when I, I use the word "sell," and, and people, you know, envision some used car salesman mm. in a hideous plaid jacket, you know, herb tarlic. Yeah, you know, um, that's not what I mean by selling. You know, it's not. It's it's give your ideas a chance to to win, to live mm. and do that by telling stories. Wow. You unpacked a lot there. The research into the audience, the emotional connections, but also as a note to Jane, the listener, if you really can't find that story inside yourself, perhaps one that isn't relevant, then you have seen a movie or read a book or heard someone else's story that can be used metaphorically or, or however, you need it to, to make that same compelling point. Yes, exactly. And, and clearly we, we, the average person walking into the room may not have even seen Conan the Barbarian. Right. We took a bit of a chance, but we knew because of the backgrounds of these four fellows, that was highly likely that they had. Mm. And if they had the connection with their military backgrounds would be profound and uh it was and we won you knew you had it in the bag when the saint crispin's day speech began i assume yeah that's when you know that that was just you know i was looking at my colleagues like yeah okay (laughs) anybody got a contract (laughs) (laughs) and they they went back to washington and, and and called us up and said you're our guys right now remember let's go back remember we were not supposed to be in it. Right. We had to come. I said before, if you're an underdog, we had to come from way back in the pack. Uh, you know, we would try to, uh, and, and I suggest that people do this if they can, try to evaluate your prospects. Mm. Like if we're an A going into this, they know us, they like us, we're an A. We're a D. They have a pretty good feeling about us, but you know the other guys. It's a favorite in there, and it's not us. We're a C. No, C's don't win. Mm. C's do not win. Mm. They certainly don't win if they play by the rules. They certainly don't win if they follow convention. You've got to change it up. And another point about you talk about things that were unpacked from that is we have to be committed. And by that, I mean, if if we together as a team, whoever's on the team, you know, working on the presentation, planning it, writing it, whatever, uh, we commit to what we're going to do. And that doesn't mean that we're saying the same thing word for word. In fact, I urge people to not memorize things, Mm. you know, because you and I were talking before we went on the, it's not really the air, but about keeping things loose and conversational. And that's. One of my biggest rules for presentations is make it a conversation. Only you're doing most of the talking. Right. It needs to feel like a conversation. But once you start that conversation, even if you have put out this absurd premise of let me talk about one of my favorite movies of all time, 
you have to stay committed to it and go through with it. Right. Don't don't show any signs of weakness. Don't get second you know second thoughts. Right. Because then or they will. Or if you don't like that, we can talk about. No, you can't. No. You're dead. Exactly. Right. And it's interesting about learning lines or not because I, I see it all the time, especially with younger people. They're rehearsing, but all they're doing to rehearse is trying to memorize every single word. And once they get in oh, that yeah. flow in the pitch, the slightest yeah. disruption will throw them oh, off. Yeah. And then there'll be an actor on stage not knowing what to say next in the play. And it's exactly. not about that, but they feel like they must do that as a comfort blanket almost. Because if I don't know exactly what the next word is, then what am I going to say? My advice is that everything you know is wrong. Right. Everything you think you know about presenting is wrong. Uh, how are you going to keep it conversational if you're memorizing? You know, and, and none of us, you know, actors have to memorize their lines. Mm. They're supposed to do that. And I've seen actors try to present. They're shitty. They're awful mm. presenters. Right. <laughs> because they need the script. Yeah. I, I was involved in a project a few years ago. There's a little name dropping with Brad Pitt. Oh, wow. Yeah, a wonderful guy, very nice man, yeah. and uh, committed to this, this charitable thing we were involved in. But he had to get up and stand on his feet and talk about it to a group of people in a room, and he was completely lost. He just could not do it. Right. Couldn't do it, yeah. If I had given him a script, he would have killed it, probably. And yeah, because he would have acted have done, it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But no, you cannot. you cannot memorize it. You can't. It's, you have to learn the ideas. That's it. You know, you know the ideas. You have a few signposts, if you will, that you know you have to get to in order to get to your to your finish line, whatever that may be. Um, but it, it can't be a rigid deal because if it is, as you say, we, we're all going to lose our, our, our place. Mm. You know, it's like our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that kid. Nah, they, uh, they, um, <laughs> right our father who art in heaven how <laughs> right <laughs> you know they they just they're you're dead yeah so you know be relaxed have fun etc 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 uh but don't memorize don't ever memorize yeah no and, and you know that should be music to your ears because memorizing things is horrible it just ups your own right. pressure on yourself, right? And that's the good news. Right. Don't memorize it. That's one of the ironies of this whole thing is that, that things that everybody thinks are true are simply wrong. Right. You know, I've, I've been working on this idea about the myths of new business. Right. And I think I, I think I touched on this first one before is that we're there to sell our ideas. Yeah. No, you're not. You're there to connect. Right. Oh, what the hell do you mean? You're there to connect. I mean, one thing, another way to think about that is that you're, you're searching for the confluence of your brand, which is who you are or your agency is, what you, and their brand. At what point do those brands come together mm. and intersect? You know, that's, if you can get to there, that's a lot more compelling than selling, look at this, huh? how right. about this, you know? No. Um People say the best work wins. We've said that before. It doesn't. There's just so many examples of, of, of there's rooms full of really good work yeah. all over the world. Yeah. Never got sold. Yeah. Um, 
great work speaks for itself. No, it doesn't. You've got to do the talking for it. You absolutely have to. And this is one of my favorites. We need to show them that we really understand their business <laughs> and that we understand, we understand their business every bit, if not better than they do. That's bullshit. That's, Excuse me. That's bollocks. Yeah. Oh, much better. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you are never going to know it as well as they do. And to suggest that you do is not only presumptuous, it's probably rude. Right. You know, it, it's just, it can have the absolute just, opposite effect when you pretend to of what you come think. across. Exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. And, 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 then, and then we need to tell them every single thing we know about the topic, about the problem, every single thing we know about the category mm -hmm. in order to convince them that we both know you do not. You only have to tell them whatever is necessary to tell your story. Mm. See, there we go back again to what is the story. Here's, here's another anecdote. But it's a story, isn't it? Uh, I was working with one of my agency clients, and they came to me, and they were an incumbent. You right. and I touched on this idea a little bit, yeah. a little bit before we came on here, and they were an incumbent, and they regularly earned twenty-seven million dollars in revenue right. annually from this one client. It's a nice gig. That's that's a lot of money yeah. in the advertising business. Yeah. And again, boys and girls, that's not billing, that's revenue. Right. And they said to me, We've got to keep we have to defend it. We have to keep it. Losing it is unconscionable. Because if we do, we've done the math, we have to fire two hundred people. Oh. Okay. So we began to talk about it on the phone. I hadn't yet gone to the city of uh, to meet with them, but we talking about it on the phone, what we're going to do, and uh, back and forth, back and forth. But they, are, of course, are terrified. Terrified. And it's entirely understandable. Right. Absolutely terrified. It's the biggest thing they've ever had to pitch, and it was our, their account already, but they need to hang on to it. Yeah. So, and then they're told, uh, by the way, there's also another $15 million worth of new revenue in creative fees that the lucky winner will take home. Right. Uh, okay. So I get I, I get to the town, which coincidentally enough was Boston, a Boston agency. And um, I said, all right, let's see the deck. <laughs> yeah, we can do a <laughs> we can do an hour talk, Danny, on the deck. How many but, pages for how many slides? That's the, first of all. Oh, I'm about to tell you. <laughs> that's, that's, the right, that's the right question, isn't it? Over 300 oh, slides. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Over 300 slides. And it did not even include the speculative creative, which they were required <laughs> to show. Well, it's all supporting and, information. <laughs> right. And they. So what it was, was it was everything they knew about this particular subject. Right. You know, and everything else that right. they knew about anything in the world. Because if we leave that out, we may not win. And if we don't win, we're fucked. Right. We're going to have to fire little Johnny. Yeah. You know, yeah. I understand. I have sympathy for little Johnny. So let's not lose. The, the, the uh, oh, here's another thing we could talk about. The consultant, the pitch consultant that was running the, the right. show, gave them a total of three hours 
which is long for those things, as I can, yeah. at least in my experience, it's long. Yeah. It's usually two, but yeah. gave him three, and he said, uh, you know, you can go for two and a half, two forty-five, and then we'll do fifteen minutes for questions. <laughs> yeah, right, fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, we can get to that idea right. in a minute. Don't ever listen. Don't listen to the pitch consultants. That's another another subject. But so I sit down. I go through the deck. It takes me nearly three hours to just read the slides, not present them. So, you know, I look at them and they look at me and they're like, mm, they're kind of sheepish. <laughs> Do like, you like it? Is <laughs> <laughs> it thorough? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. quite thorough, yes. <laughs> it's quite thorough, thank you, yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, no, this can't work. We cannot possibly do this. And let me tell you why. And then, God bless them. Talk about having courage. They said, okay. What are we going to do? I said, we're going to start cutting. And we're going to start figuring out what it is we really need to tell them. What do we really need to say in order to carry the day, in order to win this thing? And we have to go first. Now, first is not a bad position. It's not as good as last, right. as you know. But first, when there's four other agencies presenting after you, is a little tough to maintain that emotional connection mm. all the way through those other presentations. So when they finally did the show, which was quite an extraordinary staged event that we put together, I loved it. It was it was showbiz. Right. We did it. We did it in there. It was it was the Bank of America, the biggest right. one of the biggest banks in the world in their boardroom and we blacked out the entire room et cetera et cetera we you've seen that sort of thing it was quite theatrical but the point of the story is that the deck was now 21 slides right 21 slides and it took them one hour and 17 minutes Beautiful. to go through And they'll make a long story short, we won. We carried the day. Right. We did. So it's just such dramatic proof that you don't need to tell them everything. You just need to tell them what they need to hear to say yes to you. It's so true. And one of the things I see time and time again is we've got two hours or we've got three hours. So let's map out two hours it? or three hours. Exactly. Right, yeah. right, right. right. And then no matter what happens, ah, oh, damn it, we didn't have time for the last five minutes <laughs> because everything goes slower right. than you think anyway. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it, I, whenever I'm, I get to an agency, particularly for the first time, I'll ask them what happens when, the, when you're told you have two hours. Well, we, we get to figure out how, how we're going to fill two hours. Right. So we know we're completely screwed up at that point. I said, then what happens? We start on the deck. Yeah. How do you start on the deck when you don't know what you're doing? Mm -hmm. yet? Maybe you don't even need a deck. Exactly. Well, I mean, you got to have a deck and decks are hard to do. They take a lot of time. So you got to get started. And these is, you know, <laughs> ostensibly intelligent people. Exactly. Exactly. They just don't know any better. And, and they operate from a position of fear. Right. That's it. And it comes back to similar to remembering your lines that your deck is your safety blanket, because no matter oh, what yes. happens, I'm going to have everything on the slides behind me. So the main thing I need to do yes. is get through them and then 
the pitch oh, was finished. Yes. And then, yes, once the pitch is finished, we can all leave. <laughs> <laughs> and we can go have a cocktail. Exactly. Yes. Oh, God. Like you, are you stealing my words? <laughs> so, so many. I, I often say that I, I see a person whose idea of a great presentation is getting through her part of the deck without getting hurt. Exactly. You know? I did my five minutes, and, oh, right? And then she sits down and has no idea what else is going on in the room. Nor does she even know anybody else's part. And she doesn't care. No, doesn't care, and thinks that she's doing the right thing for her team. Right. You got to know everybody's part. You need to know the whole thing backwards and forwards. And you can't. Another another one I love is that um, we need to send enough people to match up with the people on the other side. Right. You know, they're going to have eight people because they've got the district head of marketing and yeah. they have the head of the DEI and they have the. No, you don't. You need to send enough people to tell your story. Yeah. You keep going back to that, right? To tell your story well and effectively. That's all you need to do. Well, we need to have the head of. So, no, you don't. Um, again, some of this stuff is just going to be really iconoclastic mm. to your listeners, but. One big pitch that uh, that I was involved in with uh, one of my clients, we did our due diligence that I referred to a couple of times. And because we had somebody on the inside, you often have someone on the inside. Right. You should, if possible, they, right? Yeah. Yeah. They told us, oh, by the way, they hate your chairman. What? Huh? They hate him. <laughs> well, if we didn't know that, we would have walked in with him leading the charge. Right. So it fell to me, the outside guy, the consultant, to go to the chairman and say, oh, by the way, Mike, they hate you. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be in it. Right. And God bless him. He said, okay, I get it. How can I help? Mm. And so he helped. He was very smart, very savvy mm. business person. He helped a lot. And he was a big enough man to know I don't have to be in the room. Yeah. And we won that one too. Yeah. But we would have lost. if he, We probably would have lost. If they had to sit there and look at the guy they hated. Yeah. And it comes down to fear again, I think. I mean, I've been in pitches where so. there's three people client side and we still bring eight because right, right. And, and it's almost like fielders in cricket or baseball. You never know where the ball's going to land. So we got to bring everyone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I remember going to an agency once and I said, well, how many people did you bring to the last pitch? 12. <laughs> and I said, well, I can play American football with less than that. Exactly. You know, what the fuck were they there for? Well, we have... yeah. no, 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 no. Most of them wouldn't have even send... spoken a word, probably. No. Right. No. And you only send, you only send great presenters. Yeah. There's another rule. Most agencies don't do that. You can only send your best presenters. Yeah, but we got to send the head of analytics. Maybe not. Maybe not. You know, uh, unless she's a great presenter, then we send her. Right. And she doesn't talk just about analytics. She talks about, she tells our story. Mm. You know, quit breaking everything up into silos. Mm. There's another idea, you know. Oh, I'll be running the account and I'm here today. I'm pleased to say that we have a wonderful team with us. And now here's Bob. 
your strategy director and Bob gets up, you know, and it's yeah, just, he talks it's about bullshit. strategy. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And his, his, uh, his personal philosophy on strategy is quite <laughs> fascinating. Oh, shut up. Yeah. Tell me something I want to know about, you know? So, well, one of the things I'm really fascinated in, and perhaps I'm fishing for another anecdote here, but not necessarily. I don't have one in mind this time. So, uh, you know, say whatever you okay. feel like. But we've talked about disrupting and we've we've mentioned it. And we've mentioned theater. And we've mentioned not even having a deck, which is crazy for some people. Do you have any... Oh, yeah. um? Do you have any experiences of, of something far more experiential that's worked or, or, or perhaps failed, you know, creating an experience rather than relying on slides, information, stories, presentation? Here you go. Yes. Yes. By the way, before I answer the question, because yeah. I do have a good story for that, a good anecdote, at least. I was on a podcast a couple of years ago. Uh, I did this guy's podcast twice. An interesting dude named Mitch Joel. Mm. He said to me at one point, well, your idea of a really good deck is the same as mine, Peter. I said, yes, meaning that without you in the room, it would be unintelligible. Mm. Meaning if I use a deck, it's all visual. Right. Every now and then there'll be a word, but that's about it. You know, every now and then, but for the most part, it's all visual. The less you put on a slide, the more you can say. You know, you've got an image of an orange, a piece of fruit mm -hmm. on the wall behind you. You know, a huge orange. You can talk about anything. Right. You don't have to remember your line. <laughs> right. People use, people, we talked on this about, you mentioned this before. People use the deck as their outline, their Cliff's Notes, you know. And then again, of course, there's the people who just stand there and read the deck. Right. And they should be taken out and shot, you know. But it also, especially still get away with it. Think about the orange, you know, it not only gives you all of the stuff you've just said, but it also elicits this sense of curiosity in the audience as well. And that is a very yes. powerful thing if we can achieve it. Yes, yes. Well said. Well said. I mean, if we can have that reaction, as you just explained, which is uh, or described, oh, I wonder what they're going to talk about here. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Because most people. Think about it. They really don't want to be in the presentation. They don't want to see it. <laughs> no. And and most no people don't go to something hoping it sucks. Right. You know. <laughs> they, they go to something hoping it's really interesting and new and different. Yeah. And enjoyable. And you're on to you're exactly onto it. But here's the experiential thing with no deck. I was helping some friends in a small agency. Uh, who are up against some big, again, a challenger agency, up against some big guys, and they were pitching the account of a National Basketball Association team. Mm -hmm. And in the States, the NBA is a big deal. We're in the championship finals right now, by the way. And uh, the opportunity to, present, to represent one of the 30 teams in the league is a big deal. So what are we going to do? Uh, and again, how are we going to be a little bit different? Well, <laughs> there was something really obvious. That <laughs> this agency, some of you may figure out who it is from this, <laughs> but this agency 
actually has a basketball court inside it. Right. And I said, well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do the presentation on the basketball court. We're not going to do it in the conference room. Please. And we're going to put bleachers in there. We're going to put them in the bleachers. And we're going to be on the other side, like we're on the benches, and come over and talk. And then somebody, I don't think it was me, somebody had the great idea. They said, well, how are we going to start it? You always talk about having a great opening, Peter. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. We will lower from the ceiling an American flag. Because it's typical to play the national anthem right. before yeah. professional uh, basketball and at any uh, professional sporting event. So we lower, they're in, they're sitting in the stands. We lower the American flag. A little 10-year-old boy walks out onto the middle of the court, turns to the audience, and sings the Star-Spangled Banner, which is our national anthem. Yep. They're overwhelmed they're charmed they're going wow this is really really interesting this is unlike anything we expected to see especially you know, a 10 year old as well that that's got an extra right. layer of oh, emotion yeah. it, was, it was perfect bringing children it was into perfect. this exactly yeah. yeah yeah i mean we didn't want to bring <laughs> yeah <laughs> you don't want to bring a lounge singer in, you know, to do it. <laughs> right it, it was really really good and and that set again that set the tone yeah. for the whole thing and that began the emotional connection and make them see one of the things I think that you know is that the audience is evaluating you, of course, as an individual, as well as part of the team. But they're evaluating you and they're evaluating the way in which your organization presents its ideas. Because if you do it in, a, in a, what we would call a creative way. I think it's much more likely for them to believe that you will handle their business in a creative right. way. But one of the things that happens when it becomes time for us to ostensibly we're in a creative business, when it comes time for us to talk about it, we try to sound like them. Right. We try to sound like the business folks, yeah. you know, God bless them. I'm not denigrating them, but they operate their own particular way. Creative people tend to operate differently, but we put all that aside and pretend that we're just like them. Mm -hmm. Well, they've already got them. Right. <laughs> they need people who aren't like them. They need us. And you're not going to make them believe that if you continue to go in there and act like them. Right. And dress like them, behave like them, speak like them with their jargon. Yeah. Here, let me ask you another question. Sure. What is the biggest car crash of a pitch you've ever been involved in? <laughs> yeah. Um, this one was so long ago, because this was in uh, when I was running. We were in my agency mm. uh, you know, prior to me starting the consulting company. And uh, we weren't long into it, probably about 10 years. So it's, it's a good long, it's a long time ago. So long ago that the medium that we used to present was slides that were projected right. with a slide projector. You know, Kodak carousel yeah. slide projectors. Yeah. 
Many of your listeners have no idea what I'm talking about at this point. Never seen them. Just lost half the audience now. Yeah. Yes. Well, they, <laughs> shall, shall I switch stories? No. <laughs> no. They, uh, they might recall if they were a fan of Mad Men, the famous episode called Carousel. Absolutely. In which, which Don does that magnificent presentation in the smoke-filled room using the carousel projector and that they were there nostalgia absolutely yeah and and talk about i mean that's that's a lot of what i preach you know that's why i was so happy to see that episode he he was using an emotional connection you know this is a man who was essentially emotionally dead right which is one of the ironies of right. he can't connect with his own family but he shows images of, the, of his own family right and everybody in the room sees their families mm. and how they feel about it. So again, there's another example that illustrates what you and I have been talking about. At any rate, we had to use uh, slide projectors. And we were putting on a big, big show because it was for the state of Virginia tourism uh, board. Mm. Virginia is for lovers, which we had done and we need to refresh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we were against the people. Some people in the advertising community there will, will have heard of the Martin Agency, which is headquartered in Richmond and uh, excellent agency, quite, quite successful. And they were the inventors of uh, Virginia is for Lovers. They were our competition along with two other agencies for the state tourism business. We determined that we were going to use, see, this gets a little wonky, a little technical. We're going to use rear projection so that we could walk in front of the screen mm. and the images would be behind right. us. Like General Patton with George C. Scott stands in front of the giant American flag yeah. in the movie Patton. Uh, like people in front of chroma key, you know, that's what it would look like. Yeah. And in order to do that, we had a huge screen. They, the people running the tourism board had decided that rather than having the presentations at their offices or at the agency's offices, they would really level the playing field and rent meeting rooms in a hotel. Right. Hotels are actually known for their AV expertise as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> and what what the first rule of presenting at a hotel is bring everything right, your own, right? Bring all your own stuff, yeah, including okay. a generator. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true. We 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 had a giant screen, and we were going to have these wonderful images behind us, and we had twenty four slide projectors. Wow. We also had a video projector. There was such a thing, a video projector. And they were all hooked up to a computer and an operator who would be behind the screen. Uh, actually, more of an overseer because it was all designed to work automatically right. once it started. Well, we got in the next morning after having tested it out the night before. And lo and behold, if we kept the screen back where it should be allowing room for the audience, the images on the screen would be about the size of a postage stamp. 
If you've ever dealt with these things, you know what I mean. Yeah. You need throw distance. So in order to get the images as big as we wanted, or even close to as big as we wanted, we had to move the screen all the way up right. to the point where the screen was about this close to the people. <laughs> and there was barely room for me and my partner to walk in front of the screen and and the people. And I'm looking down on the people like this. And it was just, that was horrible right. in and of itself. But we get into it. And all of a sudden, the projectors start firing randomly <laughs> if someone used the elevator in the hotel it triggered our projectors wow we had to your earlier line we had a generator in a truck outside parked in the street cables run up into our room the Martin Agency also had their cable truck outside. It looked like we were shooting a feature right. in the hotel. There was so much gear right. around there. And it just went crazy. Images flashing. At one, there was a word. One word we wanted on the screen was execute. <laughs> and it's going execute, 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 execute. Right in their faces as well. <laughs> right this close to them. And people are looking up at me like, oh, please don't hurt me. Just don't hurt me. This is an emotional connection. Yeah, there yes, you go. But not, not the one I sought. This is the use of fear. Yeah. <laughs> it can be strangely effective, yes. <coughs> and it just gets worse. The aforementioned research guy from my agency is often at the, at the corner leaning against the wall the way elephants do against baobab trees. Yeah. He doesn't realize that that's the light rheostat. <laughs> so the lights in the room are going up and down, up and down, up and down, while the projectors are going, and we're trying to talk. Well, clearly this is an absolute unmitigated disaster. Yeah. But we don't stop. Right. I talked about commitment before. <laughs> yes. We don't stop. Yeah. We just keep going all the way through to our big finish. <laughs> <laughs> they're, 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 la they're just thrilled to still be alive. <laughs> and they get up and they leave. Right. And we're sitting around going, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. That's the worst thing I've ever been involved in. Wow. So we slink back to our offices. And we're sitting in our offices, and oh, my God in heaven, this was a great opportunity, and Jesus. And we get a phone call from the head of the tourism board. And she says, and she swore like a sailor. Right. She was a doctor, a PhD, Dr. Betty Diener, quite an extraordinary person. And she says, Peter, what the fuck was that? What do you think you were doing? What what were you trying to tell us? <laughs> and I I try to give them, and she goes, yeah, 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 just shut up. Just shut up. She says, the Martin Agency did even worse. Wow. They were next. We went to see them after you next door. Right. Their, all their stuff <laughs> fell apart on them. The difference between the two of you is you guys showed grace under pressure. Right. Therefore, 
Therefore, I am going to advance you and give you an opportunity to try it again. Wow. And you have one week to try it again, either at your place or our place. You make the call. I'm going to advance you and one other agency. Martin's out and the other guys are out. Right. Come back and let your creativity soar. Yeah. She hung up the phone. Well, we went back. We did it. We simplified everything. We didn't have multiple speakers. We learned something. It was the first time that I did the entire presentation. Now, this is a team sport for the most part, right? Everybody, we're all, we, we do it with, with teams. But if you can limit it down to the point where there's very little chance for error by having just one person who can do it, mm. do it. It worked. It worked like us very well for us. And from that point on, that's how we did every presentation. Only one speaker. That's unconventional and crazy. I know, but it worked. Now, you know, it, it happened to be me. It could have been a partner. It could have been someone else who was better than I was, right. you know, but I was the guy who knew how to do it. Uh, and it worked. Wow. But, you know, there's so many lessons that came out of that, you know. Don't try to do too much. Don't try to be, to dazzle them with technology. Don't, don't, you know, don't fly too close to the sun, yeah. you know. And keep it simple. Keep it simple. It doesn't mean you can't be elegant. You know, I think uh, simplicity, elegance lies in simplicity. Yeah. You know, simple, clean. And um, we won the business. So, yeah. And we had it. We had it for another four years, so it was good. We did some really good stuff, and we were happy. I hope you don't mind, but I did just cry with laughter at that story. <laughs> quite literally. I don't mind a bit. I think that is quite a compliment. <laughs> I like that one. I'm looking forward to sharing that story with the rest of the world when we get there. Well, if they, you know, if anybody can ever understand the idea of slide projectors, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I've actually done a lot of work personally with slide projectors because it was a bit, it was a bit retro. And this was before I was in the world of pitching. This was art installations and using all kinds of crazy carousels mm. that you pre-program with cassette tapes and use silent clickers and things to kind of record yeah, onto yeah. these tapes. So I guess with these twenty-four projectors, you had to manually record the clicks at the right time to get them all to change as well. It's a Yes. It's quite an undertaking, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it all came asunder. Yes. Unsurprisingly, perhaps. But there you go. <laughs> it's a very funny deal now. Right. <laughs> At that moment, not so much. The fact you won it, though, is uh, you must have had a good laugh about that yourself at the time, actually. Like, wow, can you believe that she just called us and said that? Well, again, you see, I think that that just illustrates... That, that that everything that we think we know about this stuff is wrong. Right. You know, we advanced because we showed grace under pressure. Yeah. And then we won in the finals because we made a very simple connection with those people. Mm. And and we made several of the judges in that room cry. Right. When you make them cry, you win. Mm. On that note, then, what's the most emotional pitch you've ever been involved in? I was uh, working with the aforementioned uh, Martin Agency. 
shortly after I started my consulting business. And they asked me to work with them on some new business pitches. And this one particular pitch was for the account of what shall remain an unnamed uh, tourist destination in, uh, in the Caribbean. And we made it through the, the written part, the RFP filling out part. Again, there was a search consultant, a fellow who at the time was quite famous in that business named Skip Pyle. And we were one of the five finalists. And the, the final presentations were to be given at the offices of this uh, tourism commission in the island, on the island rather. And so we went down a few days early, which was kind of a bit of a, Bit of a jolly. You could say a bit of a boon yeah. doggle. Yes, it was a bit of a jolly, but I, I was told that you're in charge. You're the pit ayat, uh, pitch ayatollah, which was a term the Martin Agency used. Hmm. So go ahead and do it. Take the team down there and get to know the place. And we did that, and we did this, and we did that, and we, we did a whole bunch of things. Um, we get a briefing the day before the final from Skip Pyle. And he says, look, here's, here's the only things that I, I, I insist that you do. You must show us fully blown out, speculative, creative across every platform. Okay? Yes, sir, Skip. You got it. And I don't want any professional presenters presenting. I want the people who are actually going to work on the business to present. Those are the only two things that I insist upon. You got it? Yes, sir, Skip. Yes, sir. Okay. So you know what we did, of course. We, The day dawns. <laughs> and we, we showed absolutely no speculative creative work of any kind. None. Zero. We didn't do any advertising work at all. And no one who spoke that day would ever, ever work on that account. <laughs> I did the open and the close, and I didn't even work at the Martin Agency. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last time I ever appeared in one of the pitches that I was doing for a client because I finally figured out this is a bit unprofessional right. of, on, of my part. But uh, okay, I did it. And my close... <laughs> was about the power of dreams. Not tourism, not the virtues of that island, not this, not that. The power of dreams. And there were five judges and four of them were in tears. Right. And I knew we had won. Yeah. And in fact, they gave us the business in the room. Right. With other agencies still to present. And I said, no, I don't think you can do that. It's other people. No, no, no. We want to. Yeah. We want to give you our account. We want to work with you guys. Okay. Okay. Fine. But let, let's thank you very much. You know, now again, I'll, I'll repeat myself Well, to a certain extent. We did nothing that the search consultant told us to do nothing. And we won the business. He came up. So help me 
he came up and said to us, best presentation I've seen in a long time. Way to go, guys. Everybody loves the winner, right? And that's such an important lesson, and I struggle all the time to get people to believe me when I say this. Procurement, yes. pitch consultants, clients, they will give you all sorts of parameters and rules that you must never break. And the way we win pitches is by breaking them, breaking them. in the right way, right. in the way that we know is right for them. Absolutely. That was so well said. I can't say any better myself. Mm. Very, very well said. It, it's just there, another way to think about it um, is that the pitch consultant's job is not to help you win. The consultant's right. job is to put four or five contenders, all of whom seem worthy and qualified, in front of their client, the brand. Right. Not to choose one or not to lean in the way. No, 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 no. So don't listen to them. <laughs> They're doing their job. Your job is not to do their job right. and vice versa. Exactly. You go in and do, as Danny just said, you go in and do what is right for the situation, for the client, and for yourself. Well, we've certainly been on the same page during this podcast episode. I'll say that for sure. It's uh, yeah. It's been such an amazing pleasure talking to you. Before we finish, I always ask my guests this. What are your final words of wisdom for people who want to be better at pitching? I, I, I think it comes down to the idea, and this has been something that, that I've gotten feedback on from people, very, very senior people and junior people over the years, you have to be yourself. You must be your genuine self. And that's, again, the notion of fear that you articulated earlier. That's scary for a lot of people. They want to hide behind uh, different uh, personas. They want to hide behind their deck. They want to hide behind their team. It's about being yourself and putting yourself out there and being vulnerable, feeling the import of what you're doing, the emotion of, of what you're doing, and sharing that with the audience. If you can get to that, you can be an excellent presenter. Brilliant words of wisdom. I couldn't agree more. Peter, thank you so much for your time. And I well, if you agree, then they must be brilliant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thank you again for your time. I appreciate it so very much. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you very much. It's really been fun. And uh, go enjoy some ice cream. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity, and much more. 